This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Darren, and Darren's going to take us through a pretty complex strategy. I was impressed that he was willing to do this. As I mentioned at the end of the interview, it's sort of a high-risk, low-reward proposition to put yourself out there like this, and I think that you can see this is part of why I like to do first names only, minimum identifiers, Not that Darren does anything that's not compliant here. Actually, of all the versions of the strategy he talks about here, this is the most compliant and the one that's, I think, uh, going to present the least amount of tax risk. But still, I think that you'll appreciate that there will be some people out there who maybe have questions about this or want to present challenges. And I think it's just easier if that's not available to him. So this episode will be good for one life insurance credit in Alberta, will be good for one financial planning credit, it will be good for life insurance credits in all other jurisdictions, it will not be useful for a IROC credit and it will not be useful for an Alberta Insurance Council ANS credit, it will be good for an Advocus IAS credit as well. So just no ANS in Alberta and no IROC credits for this episode. The color for today's episode is black. The color for today's episode is black. Before we hear from Darren, I just want to go over a couple of terms, or I guess one term that he presents here. He says this thing isn't going to get you in trouble with Gar. Gar is not his manager or some guy down the street or an 80s punk band. Gar is the general anti-avoidance rules. And this is a fairly broad provision within the Income Tax Act that basically says, hey, look, if you are doing something that is in line with the rules as they are written, but still contrary to the spirit of the Income Tax Act, then there's going to be an issue. Now, GAR is actually pretty difficult to enforce. So CRA will, from time to time, tell a taxpayer that what they're doing is offline because of GAR, because of the general anti-avoidance rules. The reality is, though, that when push comes to shove, GAR is seldom enforceable. Now, that's not to say that Darren is wrong to concern himself with this, because what we've actually seen over the last decade or so is a lot of the loopholes that once had to be addressed with GAR 
really closed off with what some tax professionals call SAR, specific anti-avoidance rules. And those specific anti-avoidance rules kind of show up in the Income Tax Act one at a time. So we just get these little incremental changes to the Income Tax Act to prevent the loopholes that previously CRA had to use GAR to close. And kind of the flow here is when Department of Finance sees where CRA is using GAR or having to apply GAR, that's where the bureaucrats at Department of Finance say, okay, how can we make the Income Tax Act a little bit stronger might be the right word here. I'm not sure if that's the best word to use, but how can we better define those provisions? Because when it gets to court, the courts are generally not a big fan of GAR. And we talked about this on one previous podcast episode, but the sort of challenge with GAR, it's kind of like having traffic law where we say, you know, we get that you drove from point A to point B, always following the rules of the road, but we still don't like how you did it. And that's where the courts get a little bit nervous around an attempt to apply GAR. So that being said, though, everything that Darren talks about in this episode, I would suggest is tax compliant from my understanding. There are versions of this strategy, and and I asked Darren about this, and he stays away from them. There are versions of the strategy here that are much more aggressive and do present some tax risk, and you'll hear me reference the Golini case here. I will include the link to read the Golini case in the show notes for this episode, but I would suggest that we want to pay attention to tax risk with any sort of leverage strategy, and again, we hear Darren talk about that when he talks about, first off, dealing with the accountant up front and getting the accountant's buy-in, and in fact, often having the accountant as the sort of foot in the door for a case like this. So it's one where we really have to pay attention, make sure that we are following all of our tax rules, and that early involvement from the tax professionals is going to really help. Let's hear from Darren. I'll have a few notes at the end of the episode, but he's got a lot to present to us, and I'd like to get to it. Thanks very much for joining us today, Darren. Darren is life insurance and funds licensed. He is in Saskatoon. How are you doing today, Darren? Good, thanks. Good, good. Darren, I've known you for quite a while. You've done some work towards your CFP certification as well as your Chartered Life Underwriter certification in classrooms with me? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for everybody listening, certainly recommend it. It, it, is a, uh, it is a process. It does take time, but uh, it certainly has changed the way we do business and it has changed the, the clientele that we work with as well. So, and all to the better. Thanks for, thanks for all of that. Thanks, and I wasn't looking for the plug, but I yeah, that's appreciate okay. it. Yeah, it's good. Um, so you and I chatted a little bit. I know you're a, a regular listener to the podcast, and I, I know one of the ways that your business has changed since doing the CFP and CLU is you've introduced some life insurance leveraging concepts with some of your clients. Can you just talk through a little bit of how you made that transition? Well, the transition came about by being able to have better conversations with our clients And in order to have a better conversation and understand a little bit more about our client's business, we transitioned from being the person that was coming in and trying to sell something to a business owner or, you know, somebody, a shareholder in a corporation 
to somebody that accountants were recommending them to speak to us about. So what we transitioned from becoming, you know, being that salesperson to becoming a trusted advisor that was able to put forth strategies that were more based on their particular instance and what was going to be a better business decision for them tax-wise and strategy-wise, especially with all the new rules that CRA has come out with in the last couple of years. So by being able to demonstrate a value of being able to work within understanding financial statements and working with the accountants uh, and coming in with good strategies, we've now become a partner of theirs instead of just the salesperson that they bought their buy-sell insurance from. And it's grown significantly from there. As I understand it then, it's not so much that you went back to your existing clients and said, hey, look, here's what I learned in these courses, but really that you were able to use this to get a foot in the door with some of the accountants who were then happy to refer you on? I would say it's a mix of both. It's about 50-50 because we, we were able to go back to some of our larger clients that have always been good clients and asked to have them, you know, to just become a little bit more involved and if they were open to a strategy that we thought would be beneficial to their business. Um, in a couple of circumstances, it was great. And in other circumstances, once we had a really good look at their financing and their current business model, it didn't fit. And we, we were able to just say, you know what, we have a strategy we thought we would work. Thank you for sharing information with us. It doesn't work in your current situation. And oddly enough, uh, we're still in communication with one of them going, what do you see me needing to do to take part in this strategy? So it's really moved us away from being, you know, that salesperson to being a consultant. And as soon as we went back to these clients, we then asked to meet their accountants to prepare the strategies and talk to them. And the accountants that they were dealing with, after we presented the strategy said, you know, I can see how this will fit for a couple of our other clients. So it's been a very organic growth that way. And just when you refer to changes in the last couple of years, I, I assume we're talking about uh, the new TOSI rules as well as the passive income or AAII rules. I assume those have been maybe even a little bit helpful here in at least opening people up to having conversations about different concepts. Oh, absolutely. Because where everybody is the door has been shut on what we traditionally did. So the business owner and a lot of the accountants are looking for strategies to employ with their clients that they may not have thought of. And I'm not an accountant and accountants aren't financial advisors. They're not life insurance licensed. So in, in some instances, uh, we've had one that comes to mind right away where one of the accountants said, I can't believe I've never heard of this before especially coming from somebody who was an accountant, been in the business for about 12 years, good firm, junior partner. And he said, I've even asked some of the other partners in the firm and they hadn't heard of it or they, they weren't sure how it worked. And in that particular instance, we were able to get one of the support people from our tax department in Ontario to uh, zoom in on a meeting with us and present it to the partners at the firm. And that's also helped open some doors. So it's about education, it's about knowledge, and it's about staying current on what all these new rules are. And you were absolutely right. This flies right along with TOSI and passive investment rules, 
And just curiosity of the accounting firms you're dealing with, do you find that this is more well-received with the smaller sort of local or regional firms, or do you get in with some of the big national or multinationals as well? Where's your sense of, of where you get the better reception for this? I'm finding the better reception from the regional firms. It's not that, I mean, the largest one we did was done with a national firm, but as far as being able to educate and meet with the partners and explore these types of options, the regional firms are definitely more open to you coming in and meeting with them and sharing your knowledge with them. Whereas the larger national firms seem to be a little bit more closed door to that type of an arrangement. So uh, if I would have to say, I would say there, when you make a good case that's knowledge-based and factual, every accountant is going to be open to it. I'm finding that on an education point of view, if I want to get in the door and I want to talk to the accountants and perhaps have an opportunity to talk to their clients, the regional firms are definitely way more open to it. Um, the ones that are, are not at all open to it are sort of the, the one-offs where they're, I'm just, I've got 25 clients. I don't take in new clients. I retired from a national firm. I do taxes and I don't want to, I'm not going to promote anything to anybody. And they're more, so we don't even worry about that. Okay, that's fair. I mean, it sounds like there's an ample marketplace out there for oh, this anyways. Absolutely. absolutely. It is really understanding it and knowing your tax rules and understanding the adjusted cost base and the CDA credits and and having the right knowledge base so you can speak knowledgeably about it is what it will take to open the door. You can't take an illustration, walk in, hand it to somebody, and they're going to start writing you a check for 100 grand a year. Uh, it's, it doesn't work that way. You have to understand the, you have to understand how it's put together. You have to understand the process, and you have to understand how to work with the other professionals. But once you've got that, uh, the sky's the limit. Now, what did it look like getting started there? Did you have some early, let's say, stumbling blocks? Or I know you get a lot of support from your insurer because you talk about having to have all these steps in place or the processes in place or these bits of knowledge. How much pain was there in developing that? There was some pain. And I think the pain in some instances is, you know, can be bore simply by myself because I'm a passionate person that, um, is very, when I believe in something, I'm going to be passionate about it. And this is not just an underwriting issue. This is not just taking insurance application. And because you're going to be coordinating, getting somebody through the insurance process at the same time as financing arrangements, as well as perhaps some collateral arrangements, this is a type of a process where you need to set the client up to help them understand the process. Whereas in a typical, we're gonna fund a buy sell and we're putting some term insurance in place and we can say to them within the next 30 to 60 days after we received your financial information and the doctor's information, someone's gonna make a decision. This can take upwards of six months to get everything in place and just making sure that you set the expectations in advance for that. I know for certain on the first one, I didn't have a good enough understanding of the process and now the insurer that I'm working with has actually made some accommodations for us to allow us to take premiums on delivery instead of at the time of application. So there's been, they, they've worked with us to make the process a little bit uh, better. And at the same time, 
We've created a good working relationship with a law firm in town here because, you know, as we go through this presentation this morning, you'll hear me refer ad nauseum to ensuring that you have advice from your accountant and from your legal counsel. So what we did is we made sure that we had legal counsel that understood what we were doing so that the client that wanted to enroll in the strategy, if their counsel didn't understand it, our counsel could talk to them or they would take on our counsel. So that the accountants, the lawyers, us and the client were all on the same page and understanding each other because there is a process. Once we define the process and the timelines, after that, it's now just become a checklist of, of boxes and just taking the time to get through them. I want to come back to some of the questions about the point you just raised, but I think it'd be helpful for some of the folks listening who've never dealt with one of these cases before. Can you describe a sort of typical case here? Just I'm thinking like the type of insurance, face amount, uh, ownership, some of those issues. Okay. Well, the ideal client for this is obviously is the owner or key shareholder of a successful private corporation. I would suggest they need to have been in business a minimum of 10 years. Uh, some, you know, it's a corporation that's generating significant annual surpluses and has significant assets and taxable investments. So they're holding, this is a company that is holding cash and investments inside of their holding company. These can be done in an operating company. In most instances, they're, they're held with inside of a holding company, but they can be held within an operating company. Where we're doing this is where's the money? If the money is sitting in the holding company and they've got 200,000 plus of passive assets just sitting in their corp, it's their rainy day fund, it's their, we're not sure what we're gonna do, we don't wanna pay out any more dividends, I don't need to take more salary, they've got excess investment income and they want to protect the value of the corporation and they wanna be able to still grow these assets inside of their business. And perhaps the most important thing is they're also healthy. Our ideal client is 45 to 60 years of age. Now we have done it as old as 65. There is still a strong benefit for it. That in that particular instance, it was a farm client. And of course, we all know that as we get older, the cost of insurance goes up. There is also though, because of the age, one of the considerations that needs to take into account, and all the CLUs out there will know this, there is some consideration to your CDA credit in as far as how the ACB falls in these policies. So you need to have the right policy. So even though they're older, they do reach a zero ACB quicker year-wise. So again, they need to be healthy. And in order to stay on side with Canada Revenue Agency, there has to be a demonstrable need for some life insurance. You have to be able to show that there is a need for life insurance in here. Because that would be one of the, you know, down the road, if there was not, if you were doing this simply for the tax benefits of it, you could fall into some problems with GAR. Uh, so we always want to ensure, is there a reason for the life insurance? And the solution for one, you know, if you, you check off all those boxes, um, what happens is, the corporation holding or opco will purchase a permanent tax exempt life insurance policy on that person. Uh, typically it's a whole life participating policy. 
The corporation is the owner and beneficiary of the policy. And then payments into the policy are made using your regular corporation cash flow or retained earnings. In most instances, what we do in these policies is it is a lump sum annual premium. Our minimum premium into these policies is $50,000 a year. So we're not talking about a $500 a month pack. This is a $50,000 a year plus annual premium. Then using the insurance policy, and in the first few years, usually some additional collateral, and I can address that in a few minutes, we will then go to a third-party lender and, and borrow a line of credit or a loan. So there are institutions out there that do private lending specifically for these policies because these policies accrue large cash values very quickly. So you assign the cash value of the policy back to the lender. They forward the money back to you. So you pay, you pay the lender, you pay the insurance company $50,000. The third party lender then gives you back the $50,000 in this particular case. And it's put back into the corporation, into the holding company or the operating company to earn, to earn income. And it's important to ensure that the loan proceeds are used for income earning investment purposes. Now that can be a GIC. I mean, the GIC is gonna earn income. It can be a bond inside of their portfolio. It can be a corporate class mutual fund. It needs to be something that is an income earning investment. And at that point, the interest on the loan and all of, or a portion of the policy payments would be then tax deductible back to the corporation. And to ensure, you must ensure that the loan and the collateral assignment of the life insurance policy meet all the requirements for, for deductibility under the Income Tax Act. And one of the great things is that the growth within the policy, because these policies, when you put that $50,000 in, you're going to end up creating over a 10-year period. If you're putting $50,000 in, done properly, the cash value on these things are in, in excess of six to $700,000 because of the dividends are so generous in these policies that all of that cash policy value, it grows tax preferred inside the policy. And of course, the life insurance proceeds would be paid to the corporation tax-free. And then of course, less the adjusted, the adjusted policies cost basis it creates a capital dividend credit to the shareholders. So in other words, the family can still get the money back out of the corporation. So in a Reader's Digest version, you put $50,000 into a permanent life insurance policy, a third party lender, a private party lender arranged by us will then write you a check back to 50 to your corporation. You put that right back into the company to work for you. At the end of the year, you need to make an interest payment on that loan. And as long as you make that interest payment every year, that interest payment is deductible against any gains of your regular income from that corporation. So you're ending up having a million dollar plus permanent life insurance policy, and you will in all essence pay about five cents of the regular premium that somebody else will pay. You're, you're buying it for the cost of interest to borrow the premium. The math is quite, complex and has many stages to it but yes ultimately that's often one of the selling features is you're buying this 
fairly significant amount of insurance for less than term insurance would cost you when you build everything into the structure. That's, I think, a fair summary there. That is our, if there is a sale sheet to it, our most successful transactions have been clients that have term insurance already inside of the corporation uh, to fund either their buy sell or a key person or even uh, a future buyout. They've got that that permanent, they've got the term insurance in place. We've gone back in and been able to show them that what you're paying for your permanent, your term insurance is actually more than what you're going to pay into this permanent policy. Um, of course, there is some risk, there's some leverage, and there may be some collateral that is required. But when you do a 10 to 20 year flow out of that, where at the end of the term you have nothing, and here you have a large significant benefit, it becomes a point in the meeting where the client looks at the accountant, the client, the accountant looks at the client and they go, what's the catch? <laughs> at which point, again, you go through the rules, and once they understand there is no catch to this, and this, this is not a new strategy. This wasn't created. This has been in effect for years. Uh, but now in this current low interest rate environment where whole life policies are paying dividends annually in excess of 5 and 6%, and of course, you never have a negative dividend, so you don't experience losses in your cash values, the, the, there, it becomes a dare I say, a no-brainer for a lot of them. You made the comment earlier that it's important that the client is healthy enough to acquire insurance. I'm curious about what your field underwriting looks like on this or what kind of relationship do you have with head office underwriting? You already talked about the uh, willingness to take premiums on a structure that works here. I'm interested in the medical or other underwriting aspects. The easy answer on that, Jason, is this is underwritten the same as absolutely every single other policy. We've tried to make a case <laughs> to give us a little bit of uh, a benefit uh, because of the large cash values in them. But because, of course, the cash value is being assigned to a third party lender, Sun Life is in no better position than the client buying the policy simply on their own. So as far as field underwriting, the requirements uh, for the underwriting, because these are generally people over the age of 50, and these are significant amounts, um, there is underwriting that will include things like an ECG, full paramedical, um, things like that. But that's no different than if you were buying that policy without the leveraging agreement. And uh, what about pre-underwriting? Do you, do you do an extensive amount of pre-underwriting here, or is it sort of based on the, uh, the app? What we are doing now is these policies are all being done premium on delivery, so it's completely pre-underwritten. So we take all of the information, it's a full application, and then it is underwritten and an offer is, is brought back. And by that time, once we have the offer from the insurer, and we've now got the financing and arranged, if the terms match and everybody's agreeable, then we move ahead. But until both are done, the underwriting and the financing, um, there's not a dollar out of pocket from, from the client's point of view. And can it work on like a 150% rating or a 200% rating? Where's your uh, sort of upper limit for where this becomes effective? All the way up to 250% because on permanent whole life policies, the impact of a rating is much less 
than there is on a, uh, on a, on a for example, a term policy or even a non-participating whole life policy. Uh, the rating doesn't come into effect as much. And perhaps, Jason, you might even have some insight into this because it just, that question spurred something in my mind and I've made a note. Does a rating reduce the ACB quicker than a non-rated policy? Yes, it does now. This is a change from generation two insurance from the old exempt test prior to January 1st, 2017. Do I have that right? To the new exempt test policy is that yes. Now, when you're rated, sorry, this is going to be a little nerdy, your net cost of pure insurance does include any rating, which then causes a quicker drop in your ACB, which as you well know, then gives you more access to CDA credit. So in fact, one of the things that I've seen a tiny bit of is policies that were underwritten for rated clients in the old generation two era are sometimes having uh, changes made to them that deliberately move them into generation three, waived underwriting being the most obvious one. If you uh, exercise uh, any rider that waives underwriting, that loses your G2 grandfathering okay. and brings you into G3. So, so I, don't, I mean, I don't know uh, how many of those policies you'd have kicking around, but it, it can actually be worth it. You're not going to change the underwriting. You're just going to change the tax treatment. But it's really like such a narrow set of circumstances when that would apply. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I seem to remember that in our CLU course. And that, that just spurred that question to me because we did have, we had one where the rating was 150%. And when we looked at the impact, um, it, it impacted the cash value a little bit. It adjust, we adjusted the face value, but we kept the premium the same. We just reduced the face value and the, the overall change at age 85 was almost negligible. So, and I mean, as a CFP, of course, we looked to age 96, but in this particular instance, we were looking at age 85. So, um, yeah, no, the, the underwriting is the same. The rating, uh, as we just discovered, would help burn the ACB off a little bit quicker. So that's going to give them a larger capital, a larger CDA credit in the event that something happens quicker. Yeah, perfect. So then going back to the investments, I just want to clarify, you went through so much detail in that earlier answer. Um, so I'm taking the money that I've borrowed based on collateralizing the policy. Yeah. And are those investments being done personally or are those investments being done back within the corporation? No, the money goes back into the corporation. The premium comes from the corporation. The corporation finances the, the premium. Uh, the, the lender takes the takes collateral from the the corporation, and the proceeds are put right back in. It's where the money was, so we we, we put it right back where it was. And so it, the shareholder, the shareholder is at some point though creating that interest deductibility, right? Do I have that right there? Exactly, inside the corp, yes. Oh, so not not a deduction for the shareholder, but a deduction for the corporation. I got you. Now. Okay. Yeah, but in most yeah. instances, as I mentioned before, these are done in whole course. Usually, because of the value of the cash value, because these cash values will typically exceed the premiums uh, within eight or nine years, uh, we're, we're being extra cautious to ensure that uh, you know we, we're never offside as far as the passive income rule. So. Um, because right now, 
there is no tax payable on the growth of the policy's cash value as long as it remains within the policy and the policy is funded within the current legislative CRA limits. And this helps to reduce taxable income uh, you know, as well, potentially resulting in greater asset growth over the long term. So it's usually the money is put right back into the corp. And what we normally use, or what we have used so far, are corporate class bond funds, like a corporate class uh, mutual fund or an income fund. Everything is in, uh, you know, any of the growth inside of there is going to be tax deferred because it's in a corporate fund structure. It's all considered a capital gain. So, I mean, we, we're not only showing a value to the client on this strategy long term, but we're also giving them additional advice on what can we do with just investments inside of your corporation. And in one particular instance with a client that did not medically qualify and is not going to medically qualify, um, we've now, we're now doing over $2 million worth of investable assets inside of his, or his holding company for him. He said, well, if you can't do this for me, I still like the idea of doing this because we cut his tax bill in half by, doing, by using the right structure inside of there. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I just, I'm going to be, maybe this is a redundant question. So, so really the strategy you're using does not involve any personal borrowing. Everything is all within whatever corporate structure there is. You can do this individually outside of your corporation. And I know one case in Ontario where um, a high net worth person has actually put a million dollars, has done this with a million dollar premium over the next 10, 10 years in an estate equalization strategy. Um, I'm not going to speak too much to it. Other than that, I know that there's some issues around the deductibility of the interest income uh, in it. So I will, I know that it can be done. I'd be happy to investigate it further if anybody wanted to look at it. Um, but every single one that we've done has all been with um, professional corporations um, or companies with one or two owners and their holding companies. So that's, that's sort of the, the wheelhouse that we're in right now. And everything is done corporately, yes. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I know some folks who do a lot of the, uh, like a similar strategy to what you're talking about, but borrowing the money personally. And that's a little bit tougher. There's a well-known Federal Court of Appeals lawsuit, uh, Golini, that uh, called some of those more aggressive structures into question. I think when you leave everything in the corporation, uh, your, and I think the, the extent of buy-in you get from your accountants here probably speaks to this, but uh, you, you should be keeping your, your tax risk uh, relatively low that way. I did want to ask about uh, dividend scale. Of course, you and I are having this conversation in the wake of the second COVID-related interest rate cut. And I know dividend scales are lagging, right? They lag usually about two or three years behind other rate cuts. Uh, What do you tell your clients about uh, dividend scale and the prospect that that sort of return uh, gets chopped at some point? That's a really good point, Jason. So what's important for any advisor that's listening to this is that when we illustrate these strategies to our clients, when we are in front of the accountant, we present to the client the current, in, the current dividend scale, then we also illustrate minus 1% and 
and minus 2%. So we, it is important that you go in there not overselling it. And for the most part, we always deal with the negative one scenario. So we take the current dividend scale and we illustrate it at 1% less than that. In almost every single insurer out there with the exception of one, and that's because they've got a new product on the market that they're promoting as a, a whole life policy and that yet to be determined. All of the reputable companies, our dividend scales have been, you know, they've been pretty steady since 2008. Over the last 25 years, most of them are returning within 1% of the, the S&P, or sorry, the TSX, with, of course, next to no volatility. We've got all of these dividend scales have outperformed GICs, treasury bills, and almost every bond portfolio that's out there. So you've got, like I said, these dividend scales are five, five and a half. Um, the insurer I'm working with is at six and a quarter. They've already announced their dividend scale for this year. Uh, it's been held at six and a quarter for the last five plus years. They are long looking, but when you take a look at the investment components inside of these, creating these dividend yields, these are large, um, you know, government, these are governments across the country borrowing money to build hospitals and build roads and, and large infrastructure projects. These aren't, these aren't one and two year issues. These are five and 10 year bond issues. There's, and there's only about 15% that's actually affected at all by even uh, the stock market. So yeah, you know, it's important. Take a look at what makes up that dividend return. And more importantly, when you're sitting with the accountant and the client, be conservative. Because if you're going in and you're trying to be aggressive, and you're trying to show this, you know, make this strategy um, without a need for the insurance, and it's just, uh, you know, here's a tax dodge, that's when you're going to run into problems. There needs to be a need for insurance. It needs to be conservative. You need to illustrate it, you know, lower than the current rates, and you have to have the accountant on site, and you have to have the cash flow. And if you, have, if, you, if you can check those boxes, you will show a benefit to a client that is so far beyond what they imagine that you will become their advisor for the, the you're their advisor for the foreseeable future. They're not walking away from these types of plans. Now, just going back to the accountant here. Uh, so do you prefer if you have the first conversation with just the client, or do you prefer to have the first conversation with just the accountant, or do you prefer to have the first conversation with all three of you in the room? The first conversation is with the client, and the conversation includes that you're asking the client to open up their last three years of financial statements and be honest with me. Because if you meet the qualifications of this strategy, this is a strategy that is going to be beneficial to you, your business, and your family. But this is a strategy that takes a period of time to go through, and I need to look under the hood. And if you're prepared to let me look under the hood, and you're honest in telling me that you have in excess of $200,000 worth of passive investment income, $200,000 worth of passive investments, sitting inside of your home core of your operating income. If you're looking, if you've got money and you need something to do with it, I can help you. But if you don't have cash flow and last year was the worst year you've been under and you're laying off staff, it doesn't matter if you've been in business for 40 years. You need to be in a good positive cash flow situation and you have to be open and honest with me. And if you 
have that conversation with me, then I'll put together the strategy. Then I'll have a meeting with the client and the accountant at the same time, and then we'll go from there. Now, just because we're having this discussion in the midst of this, uh, or I hope it's in the midst, I hope we're not early into it, but in this uh, COVID quarantine situation, and a lot of businesses are suffering. If I had a client who's sort of five or six years into this thing right now, a dentist might be a good example. I know dentists are going to see their revenue take a significant hit this year. Can the client take a year off? Is there, how do you sort of adjust for those one bad year scenarios? Great question. By uh, of course, original plan design is where this falls into. Too many advisors out there will look at using a permanent policy with perhaps a 10K to fund this. And in that structure, under the exempt rules, there is no wiggle room. Uh, every dollar that's being paid into that policy is going into premium. If instead you use what we call a life pay with a maximum plus premium, and that's industry standard. I know all the large insurers will have a base premium where you can overfund it to a maximum. If you use that type of a strategy, you will create enough cash value within five to six years that if somebody needs to take a break, they may be able to take a full year off. At the very least, because in these circumstances, the premium of that $50,000 structured properly, about half of it is premium and half is tax exempt overfunding. Now, if there's a bad year, I'm only looking at a $25,000 annual premium instead of a $50,000. I can either skip that year or I'll take less of a loan that year. So it all comes into play when you're setting it up to ensure that you have that flexibility. And that comes into play not just at year five or year six, Jason. Um, we're also, if you set this up properly, you can also have these financing agreements where if they've got the cash flow in year 11, 12, 13, 14, they can continue to fund this. And the more they fund it, the bigger the benefit is long term. So there, it's about making sure that you're funding it properly and I would recommend, in almost every instance, trying to stay away from any type of a, a 10K option. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that uh, perspective. And I think it's good to think about the insurance structure that works best here. Now, you said sort of some growing pains typically with learning these structures. And, and you made the comment several times that uh, you have to be able to talk to the whole team of professionals and your technical knowledge has to be quite sound as well. So let's say that I'm two or three years in the business and I've not yet done my uh, financial planning certification and I haven't thought about CLU at all. And I run into a client where I think this might be appropriate. I have Maybe it's a family friend. I've seen some of these exactly, actually a family friend where they've got a successful business. So maybe I've got a good relationship with my dentist or something like that. What advice would you have for that person who is too new in the business, maybe to have built the, the foundation of knowledge to do this, and yet still thinks they have the client who might fit this, uh, this market? With your experience, Jason, I think we could both agree that probably 75 to 80% of all people coming into this industry right now 
are people that are coming in through the larger career type shops. Would you agree with that? That's fair in the sort of traditional advisory roles yeah. for certain. That's where most people are, are coming in. Yeah. And each of those advisory roles, the larger insurers, they're all giving the new advisors access to estate and financial planning specialists and tax strategy planners, tax planning strategists and things like this. So if you're within a couple of years, I would certainly talk to your management team and, and see how you access you know, the, the, senior, the senior estate planners within that national firm. Some of the largest deals in our company have all been done. I know that our company in the last six months has done two large major, major strategies like this and both advisors are under two years in the business. So they identified the client, but the estate and financial planning services department with the advisor met with the client and then met with the accountant and then met with the lawyers. And again, there's a process, but both of them are closed uh, and both of those advisors within two years of being in the business have clients who are now giving them over $100,000 a year in annual premiums on that one each on one case. So it can be done. Um, now, if you're outside of that type of a career agency, this is just Darren talking. I would certainly use my good friend Google. I would do some research on there to get a good hold on the strategy because the major insurers in the country have white papers online for immediate financing arrangements. If you go to Google and type in immediate financing arrangements Canada, you're going to get promotional material strategy reports and stuff from every major insurer in Canada. I would find one that resonated with me and I would go to see an accountant. And I would go to see that accountant and say, look, I think I have a client that uh, may fit this strategy. Would you be able to help work with me and work the client through a strategy like this? And I would keep knocking on doors until I found an accountant that said, yeah, we've done these before. I, I'm, in, I'm in favor of it. And then I'd go back to that. And I would comment that the MGAs, almost every of the national MGAs will have a similar capacity to what you talked about from the career shop estate and financial support team. Uh, do you have any last minute bits of advice about uh, this type of business or just in general about these, let's say, high net worth insurance cases? Any parting words of wisdom, Darren? Okay, parting words of wisdom. Uh, one of the managers that I worked with when I first started in the business he said something to me and it, it stuck with me to this day. And, and he talked about, you know, the difference between a $100 a month premium and a $10,000 a month premium is just a couple of zeros. It's confidence, passion, knowledge, and understanding and being able to have those conversations with clients. So don't be afraid to try and start those conversations. Um, second bit of advice would be these strategies work when there is a need for life insurance. My contract with my uh, insurer, the success of my business, the future of my, my business is way too valuable for me to put together a strategy that could come back and cause a lawsuit from a client or from an insurer. So make sure that you have you have a demonstrable need for the life insurance. Make sure that you have good knowledge behind you. If you haven't got your CFP or your CLU, certainly Jason is a great resource uh, and has helped me 
get a better understanding of this so I can have those conversations with the Covington lawyers. But there are a lot of successful people whose shoulders we can stand on. So let's, you know, within your MGA, within your organization, find these eight people that are doing this and uh, hang around them and you'll, 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 you'll figure out how that works. And uh, in closing, one of my favorite conversations because of all of this that we're mired in right now, we've spent the last two weeks phoning all of our clients, just checking in, making sure everybody's doing okay and making whatever adjustments to plans and stuff we needed to. And I phoned one of my farm clients and I said, where are you? Uh, this is one of the clients that is in this strategy. And um, I said, what are you doing? He said, we're at the coffee shop and uh, talking about the markets. And they said, you know what hasn't gone down? And he said, what? I said, your life insurance policy. In fact, the cash value dividends just been issued. We're on par with last year and your face amount went up. So the only thing that hasn't gone down in all of this is the value of your life insurance. And he laughed and he said, you know what? I'm gonna share that with the guys at the table here because they're all, everybody's commiserating how their investments are down and they're losing money. He said, that's right. The only thing guaranteed in life is death and taxes. And the way to avoid both of, well, the way to, you can't avoid death, but the, one of the best ways to avoid taxes is working with good professionals and having good, strong strategies that would include participating fully beautiful all right that's great uh, spoken like a true advocate there and i like it okay well thanks very much for joining us i know it's a busy time for like you said making all these calls and uh, i really appreciate appreciate working your way through a complex strategy i know it's a sort of high risk proposition to be presented with the uh opportunity to talk about this thanks very much darren and enjoy the rest of your day you too thanks jason Okay, I think Darren did a really good job of explaining what is a very complicated strategy. And he wasn't shy about getting this in the more, some of the more complicated areas here, even to the extent that we had this discussion about the capital dividend account credit. And we'll just take a moment on the capital dividend account credit and the role it plays here. Of course, those of you who do any corporate insurance work will be aware that with your corporate owned insurance policy. And what we want here with a corporate owned insurance policy is, as Darren mentioned, typically the holding company will be the owner and usually the beneficiary of that policy as well. Very rarely you'll see the hold co as owner and the op co as beneficiary. There used to be a strategy that kind of manipulated CDA credits there, but that's no longer available. That's actually an example of a specific anti-avoidance rule we've seen added to the Income Tax Act. So anyways, we have the hold co own the policy, pay premiums on the policy, and act as beneficiary. I've run into this a little bit lately, and I don't know what causes this, but if we have a shareholder as beneficiary or the shareholder's spouse as beneficiary, or if either of those people has the opportunity to name a personal beneficiary, like one of their kids who doesn't work in the business, something like that, then we are going to create a taxable shareholder benefit. This really removes the benefit of holding the insurance in the corporation. It's just the same as if you were paying premiums personally, which means you have to pay your more expensive after-tax personal dollars as compared to your cheaper corporate after-tax dollars. So the idea then is we 
have that uh, insurance held within the holding company. It pays premiums. One day, the shareholder, who is the life insured on the policy, dies. The death benefit is paid to the corporation. That death benefit creates a capital dividend account credit. The capital dividend account credit, CDA credit, is based on the total death benefit paid less the adjusted cost basis for that policy. And you heard Darren talk about that ACB, and he's quite correct here. You want to get that ACB down as low as possible. Now, one of the things that I always like to point out here is that when you see illustrations from insurers, they will often assume a zero ACB. And you have to be really careful with that because that's probably only true once our life insured gets to maybe somewhere around age 70 or 75. If the life insured dies at a younger age, though, then you will find there is going to be a little bit of ACB attached to that policy. And if you have that, now the full death benefit doesn't create a capital dividend account credit. Only the amount in excess of ACB creates a, a CDA credit. To the extent that there is a CDA credit, we can take that death benefit and pay it out tax-free to the shareholders. So the shareholder who was the life insured on this policy has died. Maybe their spouse or their kids or their estate inherits those shares and now their spouse or their kids or their estate can use that capital dividend account credit to take that tax-free capital dividend out of the corporation. Uh, one caveat here is if you have an American who ends up owning those shares, that person cannot take their capital dividends out tax-free. It's still tax-free from the Canadian perspective, but it is taxable for the American perspective. It still might be efficient to do it this way, but you want to make sure that you run this by a cross-border tax specialist before going down that path. Now, the capital dividend coming out tax-free, that's very tax efficient. So that's sort of the key, or one of the keys to this strategy, is that you're going to have that tax-exempt growth on the policy during lifetime, and then when the life insured dies, you have the opportunity to get a whole bunch of corporate dollars out of the corporation on a tax-free basis. Basically, you had to kind of give up access to those dollars, although in this case, uh, Darren talks about using the cash surrender value here as a source of collateral and then being able to actually get a sort of second set of benefits from owning that life insurance. It's quite attractive and the tax win here is sort of double the com uh, combined tax exempt growth on the policy as well as the tax free capital dividend when our life insured dies, as long as you have a, a long enough strategy, a long enough time horizon here, and really you're looking to enrich your heirs or beneficiaries or whatever the case is, then this works out quite nicely. The other thing I wanted to address that Darren had touched on here was the deductibility of interest. So in order to be able to deduct interest, there has to be an expectation of profit that's not necessarily a reasonable expectation of profit that used to be the language and really that expectation of profit means that you're invested somewhere where there is either a regular return or the possibility of a regular return so if you buy a stock 
for instance, that doesn't currently pay a dividend, but may one day pay a dividend, that is probably going to meet your requirements here. If you buy a rental property where you're generating rental income, that probably meets your requirements. Even a GIC paying a low rate still is paying regular income and probably still meets your requirements. What does not work here is an investment that only provides uh, capital gains and only is likely to ever provide capital gains. As of today then, and I'm going to caution that there is some interpretation room here, but as of today, that means that we are looking at bare land as being offside. So bare land, land that you're not going to rent out, you're really just buying it on speculation, you probably cannot borrow money to buy bare land and deduct the interest. Corporate class mutual funds, what the interpretation here has been, and this is potentially a temporary interpretation. I don't want you to take this one to the bank. Always check on this, but corporate class mutual funds have the potential to pay dividends. They could pay regular income, and the interpretation there has generally been that borrowing money to buy corporate class mutual funds is on side. It's an okay transaction if you're intending to deduct the interest on that loan. The other comment here, and this can be attractive, not so much in the situation Darren talks about, although it can work here, but this can be attractive in situations where people use a policy loan for business purposes. And actually right now in the middle of COVID, you might have this where you've got somebody who has maybe a cash flow crunch, they have a corporate owned insurance policy or even a personally owned policy that person borrows some money from their insurance policy, let's say using a policy loan. And we know that insurers don't need debt servicing on policy loans. They're happy to capitalize the interest until mortality. So this person uses a policy loan, borrows some money, uses that to float their business for a while. Well, that would be a purpose that would normally be considered to meet the deductibility test. You actually don't have to pay your interest in order to deduct it. Interest is deductible whether paid or payable the same way as interest is taxable whether it's paid or payable. So if you have deferred interest, it's still taxable in the year that it's considered to be earned. Now that's all tax advice and you want to make sure that you run this by your tax professional before you go too far with this. So even though I just use the word tax advice, we want to be very careful here. I am not delivering individualized tax advice here. This is all very much how this works in general and every situation is going to be a little bit different. So if you really are looking at deductibility of interest as part of a, an overall financial planning concept, please do exactly as Darren talks about in the episode here, take this to the appropriately qualified tax professional for help. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Past grade is 
so the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, thanks very much for joining us for this episode. Uh, Very technical here. I hope that people learn something from it. And I hope that you're appropriately cautious when employing not just this strategy, but any strategy that has sort of multiple moving parts and has this tax element to it. Please do join us again in uh, two weeks' time. I have yet to record our next episode, so I'm interested to see what we get. But I have a round of people that I'm just waiting to hear back from. And hopefully we get some good content for you for the next episode two weeks out. Thanks very much for listening and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>